As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features conversations with UNT faculty, other subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Brian Lovelace, adjunct professor at UNT's Department of Behavior Analysis. Brian is a UNT alum with an MS in Behavior Analysis. He is also the director of Texas Behavior Services providing services to individuals with intellectual disabilities. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Susan. It's good to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time to come join us. It's my pleasure. Well, I'd like to talk to you about media bias. You offered a terrific course for Ollie on media bias, and I know the news media plays an essential role in society. Media is a powerful force in our lives, but surveys indicate that the public views the media as biased. Would you agree? I do agree. I think that since 2016, we are in a what is often referred to as a post-truth age. I don't know if you've heard that before, but basically it relates to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And I can say that President Trump's probably the first post-truth president. So, you know, I've seen something that I, I care very much about, which is truth and evidence and evaluating claims based on evidence. I've seen that kind of fall to the wayside. And people are starting to question expertise. They're starting to question their sources of information. It's unfortunate because that means that there's a lot of lousy sources of information out there that people are picking up on. And they tend to gravitate towards the information that agrees with their perspective instead of based on what is true. And so we're living in a post-truth age. And I think that there's been a... I'm not a media expert by any means. I'm not a journalism expert. So when I present to the OLLI, I'm hoping that, you know, I know I will get some good feedback about this, but I've seen a need for people to tell the difference between truth and fiction. And my hope is to break people out of their filter bubbles. And a filter bubble is caused by the way media works today, specifically social media and some of these other technologies that serve you up information that is designed to keep you attending to the screen instead of based on what is true or credible. So what ends up happening is that people 
end up reading stuff that agrees with them. And this makes worse the confirmation bias. So what I'm seeing is a skill deficit, especially in, in younger people, because they don't know how to avoid the confirmation bias. And we've seen a blurring of the lines in the media in terms of how journalism is supposed to work. We have these different types of media attention getters that are commonly used, things like subversion, which is basically the use of language to exaggerate or use straw man quotes. And I'll give you an example. Here's an example headline that uses subversion. Breaking. The president refuses to condemn white supremacy. Right. So what these kinds of headlines are supposed to do is it's supposed to subvert a person's normal expectations or dismantle their current worldviews. And in doing so, it causes them to be more likely to click the headline. Here's another one. Why your favorite holiday is so problematic or the exploitative roots of your daily coffee. That's an example of an attention getter used by media called subversion. It's just designed to keep you on the screen. They'll use personalization. They'll use name dropping, intentional structuring of information. So there's all kinds of tactics that are used that I've become aware of, that if people are aware of these, then they can learn to spot them and be less influenced by them, I hope. That's that's the hope anyway. Well, it does seem like media products now, which of course are going so much more online, which is a, mm -hmm. a whole different area. You don't always know who's posting this media, this news, but I know that media products of any kind are created by individuals who make conscious and maybe unconscious choices of what to include and what to leave out of a story. So I can see that it would be important for people to be aware that there may be biases in what they're reading. Absolutely. And, and bias isn't necessarily the problem. It's hidden bias that's the problem. But I will also say this, that we're at the dawning of a new age of synthetic media. We're right at the beginning of it. So in the future, in the not too distant future, I predict that many of the articles that you're going to read, including many of the ones you currently read, are not written by a person at all. They're written by artificial intelligence. And it will, in the not too distant future, it's already here in a lot of ways. Even the video you watch and the pictures you see online are going to be generated artificially. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but there are there's something called a deep fake. Have you ever heard of a deep fake? Yes, I just did an interview with Dr. Michael Gregg, political science professor at UNT, and that was one of the things he said we need to be very careful about. Absolutely. And it'll get so good. The artificial intelligence will be so good at doing it, you won't be able to tell the difference between what's real and what's not. So the fact of the matter is, we are living in this post-truth time where people are going to have to rely on their own ability to think their way through to the right answer. Fortunately, there's been a number of thinking processes that have been ironed out through the scientific method since the Enlightenment and probably before that, that allow us to kind of see through our natural biases and we can actually learn about the nature of reality, even though we are 
have to rely on our personal experience to do that. So there's a lot to unpack there. Gone are the days where you have a Walter Cronkite and you trust what Walter Cronkite says at 6 p.m. Now it's very much clickbait and it's not necessarily put on the screen because it's conducive for harmonious human relationships. For example, one thing that media in generally does poorly that I think they should do better is they don't distinguish between normalcy and anomaly. So, you know, they'll, they'll re and this is why you get a lot of if it bleeds, it reads type of stuff. So roughly 100% of college students do not die in hazing rituals, for example. But what you hear about are the hazing deaths. I'm not saying it's not a problem, but it can give you this impression that the world is going down the tubes. And again, it's, it's not conducive for good mental health. But, you know, I'm not saying that there needs to be regulation or anything like that. I believe we just need to educate people. And, you know, they're able to turn it off or tune it out. And we talk about evaluating sources and how to do that, how to spot media bias. There are 11 types of media bias that are often designed to hide the bias. So media bias that's out front is fine. I mean, everybody's biased. In fact, you should read across the aisle, which I have some recommendations for how to do that. Great. But it's the hidden media bias that's the problem. Things like spin, unsubstantiated claims, opinion statements presented as facts, sensationalism, mudslinging. I mean, there's these different terms that I'm sure people have heard. And that's what the class is designed to do, is to give you definitions for these things and to provide actual examples taken from the media. Uh, and if you could just spot these examples, then it begins to become obvious to people that they're trying to influence you in a particular direction. How much of that do you think has been driven by finances? Because I know sensational news, unfortunately, we are drawn to the sensational. So I'm sure that's a reason anyway for some of this. What do you think? I do. I agree with you. And I think too, that the quality of the reporting has has begun to be influenced by this financial problem. So the internet, that you have the 24-hour news cycle and you had this crisis going on with newspapers and, and long-form journalism. It costs money to hire good investigative journalists and, and to keep them hired on staff. And so what a lot of places have done is they just kind of outsource this material to the next blogger, right? And this is not somebody that necessarily has gone to journalism school and knows of the ethics. And so we've got kind of a dumbing down of the media out there, but there's also so much of it. And then you've got these aggregate platforms like Twitter and Reddit that people tend to go to to get their news from. So it just, it creates this siloing effect where people see what they want to see, hear what they want to hear. If they can keep us on the screen, people make more money that way. So it's been a solution for some of the media companies, but Oh, it's, as you can see, it can be quite dangerous with the algorithms and the way they work these days. It's an attention economy. So they're trying to keep you attached to the screen as much as they can. And if that means they're going to take you down a rabbit hole to QAnon, or they're going to take you down the rabbit hole in the other direction towards Antifa, that's what, that's what they're going to do. And so it ends up in, unfortunately, in conflict sometimes. And I've just seen this all play out in, in front of my face and, 
So I felt this need to develop this new part of the course of how to spot media bias, because I, I could just see it happening. You know, you would go home on Christmas break and people who normally talk to each other in a loving way are at each other's throats, you know, and just trying to bring everybody together. And hopefully with this new generation coming out of school, they will be smarter media consumers and be less likely to be influenced by this stuff that's supposed to get us riled up. Oh, I hope so. You know, I mentioned my interview with Dr. Greg, and we were talking about fake news. And he was saying fake news was designed with no truth just to stir up the emotions. But media bias came from people with a certain opinion, and then they reported that based on their opinion, using those things that you listed earlier. And I would imagine even if it's a written document, you could bury a story way back in the back of your paper or your magazine or whatever, and you could also bring it way up in the front on the top fold, as they say, in the journalism world. So we've got a couple of things to be aware of and educate ourselves about, right? I agree. And that's interesting that the the draw that distinction between fake news and the media bias. And I think part of that solution in identifying the difference is also telling people how to tell the difference between what is considered news, what is considered analysis, and what is considered opinion. Because those lines have been blurred. So where you get some of the media bias is in the analysis, right? So you got somebody who's inserting their background information. It's not necessarily false or anything like that, but it's coming from a particular angle. And you also get that in the opinion section. But news is not supposed to have that type of bias, right? It's supposed to just be about what happened, just be about the facts. And so there needs to be attributions attributes information to a source. It uses quotes and cites sources. It needs to describe what is objectively observable. In other words, say something was said versus, so for example, Donald Trump said versus saying Donald Trump berated. You know, there's a difference in in how you use the term there. One is inserting a subjective interpretation, that term berated, and the other is just saying what they said. So there's been a blurring of those lines. They used to be clear, like, you know, if it was in the op-ed, you knew it was going to be opinion, but there's an awful lot of blurring of these lines and and that confuses people. And certainly we have a whole generation of people who've grown up in this environment where everything is blurred and they don't know the difference. They think it's all news. How receptive are your students to learning how to spot media bias? Actually, I've learned that they're very hungry for it. And I think Part of the reason why the class has grown in popularity, and it's really grown since 2016, is, you know, they're hungry for tools to think for themselves. Certainly, you've got got people that are taking the class just because it's fun. Uh, So that's part of it. But, you know, I bring up controversial topics. In order to challenge confirmation bias, for example, you have to bring in information that disconfirms their beliefs about it. And confirmation bias is one of those natural human biases that we have that where it it's most effective is in the beliefs we already have is true. So you, we don't spend a lot of time questioning the beliefs that we already 
feel like are true. You know, they've just become part of our background information. It frees up our bandwidth to attend to other things because we do have a limited ability to attend to stuff. But that's where confirmation bias tends to hide itself. It's easy to point out the flaws in the person's argument you disagree with. But what you have to do is you have to evaluate your own cherished beliefs, your own held beliefs, and specifically look for disconfirming evidence. So if students weren't open to that, because I've always known that it was a risk to do that, especially today uh, where you know people have been coddled and they're, they believe that being exposed to beliefs or perspectives that uh, make them uncomfortable is a form of aggression. I have not found that to be the case with young people. It's certainly the case on Twitter, but most, I mean, all the students, I have 400 students this semester. We, we talk about difficult subjects. They're hungry to talk about it and everybody remains cordial and, and open-minded, I guess, for the most part. If I, I haven't been deplatformed yet. I'll just put it that way. Well, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. that sounds like the beginning of a great conversation. The conversations, make that plural. There are many yes. conversations that need to be had and not just face-to-face, but in many ways. So it's Absolutely. good. Yeah. And, you know, I understand. I don't like to be told what I should believe. You know, I don't like to yeah. be told you know, this is, this is this about this situation or person. I like to be given the facts so that I can decide myself, but it's also very healthy to question those positions that I would hold myself and hear some other person in a cordial way tell me why there's another viewpoint. Absolutely. And there's a way to do it. And it's, it's one of those things that it takes tact but, you know, having diversity is, is this popular term these days, and I support that idea. But I also really think it's important, especially in college, that you have a you have viewpoint diversity. So that means that you are exposed to ideas and beliefs that may not be right, but they also might be right. But they certainly are not beliefs you would be willing to have a conversation about in polite company sometimes. And because it's kind of like a gymnasium for your, for your thinking process. It, it allows you to be exposed to those ideas and let you know that you can survive them. You know, we got to let the words do the dying. Bad ideas cannot stand the light of day. And so talking about them is key because if we stop talking about those things and we don't let the words do the dying for us, then I'm afraid that people start dying in the process. So I'm a big believer in having an open forum and an open marketplace of ideas, but uh, that's an old enlightenment value that's uh, apparently not as popular these days, but that's, that's what I'm promoting in the course anyway. Well, how do you go about teaching your students to be better at reading the news and recognizing bias? What I've started with, and this is certainly something that's going to build, but I start with identifying the difference between news analysis and opinion. And I give them some examples of what news would have in it, what analysis would have in it, and what opinion has in it. And then I go into how to spot the 11 types of media bias. And then I give them examples. But this is just one class period that I spend on that. The rest, and this is in part two of my course. So it's in 4,900 and 3,200. I spend a whole lot of time educating them about science and what makes science different than everything else. And then we talk about 
why you should not just rely on your personal experience as the only form of evidence for believing in something. And we spend a lot of time explaining why that's the case, because in this post-truth age, what are people relying on and what are they promoting and valuing? They're promoting my lived experience, right? It's my lived experience that the world is like this and you can't tell me I'm wrong. Well, the first part of the course is to teach them that it is possible for you to misconstrue reality. And in fact, you should assume that you are misconstruing reality. (laughs) And then we talk about how to evaluate evidence and the role that evidence plays, how to use evidence to increase the probability that your beliefs are correct. It doesn't guarantee they're gonna be correct, but it alters the probability of your belief being correct. And so once we have that established, then in part two of the course, we start going into something called the Critical Thinkers Toolkit, and that's how to evaluate sources, how to evaluate logic and language, how to look for weasel words, which in the media bias stuff fits right into the how to evaluate sources and source materials. So there's a whole bunch that we cover. And, and actually, it probably the material we cover in these two courses probably deserves Each one of these topics could be a course in and of itself. Probably a podcast in and of itself. (laughs) Absolutely. So you mentioned critical thinking. In your lectures, you focus on critical thinking and the value of skepticism. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? I mean, beyond the obvious, like what do you tell your students? Why do you need to be able to be a critical thinker in order to look at the news these days? A big reason, and I guess probably... The practical reason, the ones that students will find useful, is that those in the know or those who are able to make correct predictions about the world are the ones who are successful in the world. So if your judgments are in error and your beliefs are in error, then you are not going to make the right decisions. Being able to tell truth from fiction is important as a fundamental skill in life especially if you go into a field, any kind of STEM field, or if you're a physician, if you're an engineer, you don't want those type of people getting the math wrong. You don't want them making decisions based on gut feelings. You want them having reached a conclusion based upon the evidence. In my line of work, where I'm working with aggressive individuals, individuals that have self-injurious behavior, the reason why they license people like me is because People have died from behavioral interventions in the past. People have been harmed because of people who weren't necessarily bad actors, but did not have the skills to tell the difference between truth and fiction. I mean, you can very easily, if you don't know about confirmation bias and availability error, I'll tell you a real example that happened in my practice. I work at the Denton State Supported Living Center, which is here in town as well. And there was a an individual that I had cared for in the past who ended up in the hospital and it was going to get uh, something called a G-tube, which is basically something that they put in to your stomach that allows them to inject food into. And if you have one of these, you, you're not fed through the mouth anymore. This is a person that historically didn't have a problem eating, but I knew the person, they asked me to, to go in and see if I could get this person to eat something because they're about to do this surgery. And if you take somebody's ability to eat away, this is, for especially for the guys that live out there, that's one of the most pleasurable things that they have, right? So it's a big deal. So I went in there 
And I knew this guy. I was like, oh, hey, you know, and, uh, you know, I know you. I'm just going to call him JB. And I was like, hey, JB, how you doing? And he was a short statured guy. He was always skinny. Right. So when you looked at him, he was he was a short guy. He was always real skinny. But that was how he was. And he, he had lived out there. He's not he's no longer living, but he had lived out there since he was a kid, gotten there in the 60s. And one thing I knew about him is that he did not like to eat next to other individuals and he would not eat for people he didn't know. Right. So, you know, when I came in, I was like, hey, JB, um, you want to go home? And he's like, home, home. I'm like, OK, I need you to eat that plate of food right now in front of me. And sure enough, he started eating the food and he ate it. And the doctors are like, well, obviously he can eat. So let's send him home. They, they sent him home. So then when I got back to the state school, it became my job and the job of the psychiatrist and some other people to figure out what happened. So we looked through the records and what we had found out, to make a long story short, was that a well-meaning person, a medical person, a nurse, had gone in and didn't know this individual, but saw him and thought he looked too skinny. And then asked the staff, hey, does, it, does he ever refuse to eat? And staff's like, yeah, all the time. And just based on these types of interactions, formed a conclusion that confirmed their belief that this person is too skinny and obviously is not eating. And then this started down the road and eventually led to this person getting put to the hospital, right? But if this person had gone and looked in the books and looked at the actual weights history, because they, they weigh these guys every day or once a week, twice a week. I can't remember how often they weighed him, but they do it at the same time. And they record these weights and you have an average weight range. They would have seen that this person was within their average weight range. They weren't losing weight. And if you looked in the book, it would have said he ate 75% of his meal. It's true he refused to eat all the time. That didn't mean he wasn't eating. So this person's confirmation bias and availability here. So confirmation bias is when you fail to look for disconfirming evidence for your belief in availability error is when you fail to take into consideration all the relevant evidence and you just go with what's readily available. So there were two processes happening here. This person's confirmation bias. I think this person's not eating enough. Somebody told me they, not, they always refuse to eat. That's confirmation bias. Now I've decided that this person needs medical help and availability error, failing to consider all the relevant evidence and failing to look for the disconfirming evidence, specifically going to make sure that they're not eating. You know, it almost had this person's ability to eat taken away from them. So this stuff matters. It does matter. Yeah, it's, it's very important. It really speaks to what you said about being willing to question your own reality because the doctors and the nurses, the medical staff, they weren't being bad, but they had their own reality. And this person was mortified. I mean, I always... In my practice, I always, and this is something that was taught to me by my mentors, assume that you are going to be on a wrongful death lawsuit one day. And when you're on that stand, the only thing that's going to save your neck is that you can show that your process of thinking relied on evidence and any reasonable person looking at that evidence would have made a similar decision. Well, it is so important to allow other things to come in and question what we have already established as the truth of a situation or the truth yes. of an article or anything else. And that's what you're speaking to, right? Yes. And just be open-minded to that. So skepticism, back to the original point, 
is yeah. just it's, a, it's an approach to evaluating claims. Yeah, and I talk about something called common sense skepticism, which is that you proportion your belief to the evidence. In other words, if there's a lot of evidence supporting something, then the language you use to describe your belief reflects that amount of evidence. So you speak more confidently about it. If there's a lot of evidence supporting it, your language is strong. I believe it strongly. If there's a little bit of evidence, well, it might be true. It might not be. You know, So it's important that you're, the way you talk about things reflects the actual evidence that supports it. And what you often see is that people are often on two ends. They're either very strongly in support of something or very strongly against it, but it's not necessarily linked to the actual evidence. And if there is no evidence out there, then your position should be agnostic. You should be, well, I don't know if it's true or false. It might be true. It might be false. I think about the times in history when things have shifted so tremendously, like the earth is flat. No, yeah. it's not. It's round. <laughs> we are the center of the universe. Oops, no, we're not. Yes, <laughs> Guess it's what? happened lots of times. Yeah. So, And we may have some huge changes, that, tremendous shifts of our own while we're alive that we don't know about, totally different than what we believed before. Absolutely. And certainly in physics and some of these other sciences, they're, they're happening all the time. And they're referring to paradigm shifts at this point. That's also another topic we talk about in the course that's related to scientific skepticism, because there have been many times. There, history is full of examples of scientists believing one thing, and then the evidence comes out that forces them to change their perspective. You'd brought up being the center of the universe. There's been lots of appearances that we were at the center of things, the earth being at the center of things with naked eye observations. You look up, it looks like everything's revolving around us. And then we discover that the earth is not at the center of things, but the sun appears to be. And then we discover that the sun is not at the center of the universe. It's actually about a third of the way away from the center of our galaxy. And we think the center of our galaxy is the center of things, but really uh, it's uh, one galaxy and a sea of billions of galaxies. So it's just been one event after another that's it's led to a world-changing view. And that's one of the things I try to point out to the students is that it's not really the world that's changing. It's our understanding of it. But it's because we are so immersed in our verbal streams, because we are so immersed in our, in our sensory apparatus, it appears like the world has changed to us. So there's a, a part of that learning component is teaching the students to tell the difference between their perceptions of reality and reality itself, and that there is a reality that is separate from your perceptions of it. It's knowable, but it's separate from your perceptions of it. And so the goal is to, is to find a way to have your beliefs and your perceptions of reality match reality as closely as possible. You'll never get it perfect, but there, fortunately, there is a way to do it. And what is that? Well, science, the scientific method. The proof is in the pudding, right? Now, just to give you an example, Claudius Ptolemy in 100 CE, he was credited with, in his book, All Majest, he created one of the first examples of cosmology to explain everything. He put everything together. He had all these different 
lines of, I guess you could put it in quotes, research. You had the cult of the moon, the cult of uh, the sun. You had all these different ideas about how the cosmos worked. And he put it all together into one coherent cosmology. The Zodiac, for example, was one of the first examples of, of a model of the universe. And if you were to go back in time to that period, you would say, well, how do you know the Zodiac is true? Well, they would say, well, because I could predict the future with it. I can tell you where the celestial objects will be into the future on a given date. I know when to plant my crops. I know when to harvest my crops. They're pointing to evidence, like pragmatic evidence, successful working. I know it works because I can make this prediction about the world and it comes true. But it ended up being not accurate in, uh, you know, it was accurate enough, right? So in Ptolemy's worldview, everything is revolving around the earth. The earth is at the center of everything. The earth doesn't move. It's geostationary. And that's because of what it looks like. But, you know, with the invention of the telescope, you had Galileo observe some features through the telescope that did not fit with that paradigm, with the earth being immobile and the earth being at the center of everything. The belief was that the cosmos and celestial bodies were perfect. That was one example of one of the beliefs that Ptolemy put in his book. Well, Galileo saw sunspots. We were fortunate to be in a solar cycle where we had sunspots at that time, but he, he saw sunspots. And what are blemishes doing on the sun? If thought the heavenly bodies were perfect. And then he also observed that some of the planets had phases like the moon has phases, right? So Venus over the course of a year will form a phase. It's like a half Venus and then a quarter Venus, that kind of thing. And then other planets like Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which are the only other planets they knew of, they don't have phases. So the only way to explain that then was to remove the earth from the center and put the sun at the center and put the earth further out than Venus, but not as far out as Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, because we see Venus from behind sometimes, right? Venus is further into the, closer into the sun than we are. It revolves more quickly than we do around the sun. So sometimes during the year, we see the dark side of Venus, but we never see the dark side of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Of course, now we do. We've got probes that do it, but that was another indicator that clearly that geocentric model was wrong. You know, that healthy skepticism, being willing to look at evidence and to consume it. There's no sacred cows. If you see evidence that disconfirms the belief, then you can't be sure that the belief is correct anymore. It sounds like that has to be a very active role for a person as a receiver of this information, because you have your information and then you get something that doesn't quite hold up to what you believe. And I'm guessing maybe the brain kind of likes to take things a little bit easier than that. Oh, that is so true. <laughs> it's aversive for people to see information that disconfirms with a previously held belief. There's a visceral reaction that people have to that. But what's interesting about that is that you can train people out of that for the most part. In our society, we have an awful lot of differential consequences for people getting things right versus getting them wrong. If you get test questions wrong, what happens? You lose points, right? You know, that's, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it's, it's one of those situations where people just don't like to be wrong about stuff, right? Bad things have happened to them and they've been wrong. But what's great about discovering that you were incorrect is that 
if you can train yourself to recognize that, that you might be an error, then what that does is it places you in a, in a, and I'm going to put this in quotes because I'm speaking loosely, in a state of open-mindedness. Because now you're not sure if you do what was true or not. So now you're open to the possibility of something else being true. If you have a belief established already and you haven't challenged it, you don't think about it. It's part of your background information. So people will go along merrily and just continue believing it. That's the way it was with Ptolemy's cosmology for 1,500 years. It took 1,500 years before that belief were to change. And the only thing that made it change was by seeing that disconfirming evidence. So there are greater rewards in discovering the truth about the matter. In fact, these types of discoveries, the analysis of these anomalies that led to the scientific revolutions that directly resulted in lifting more people out of poverty than any other human activity. You know, it resulted in the Enlightenment and the, it led to, it even contributed to the development of democracies. Things were stagnant for 1,500 years before that. It is aversive and you have to train people to do it because the natural thing to do is to sit comfortably with your established beliefs and not ever challenge them. But again, I think that's a training thing. You could teach people to be suspicious of those emotions because emotions are temporary, right? Right. So what is the best way a person can determine reality, the truth, from their personal experiences or their beliefs that they hold? One of the first steps is to accept a very simple but powerful fact. And that is, just because something seems real doesn't mean that it is. Now, it, it seems simple, but it's actually not so simple. Because, you know, you heard the term seeing is believing, right? But... That's why I spend a whole lot of time on this particular topic, because it's actually not the case. It, it is far easier to fool somebody, and it's far easier to cause even a large group of people to have false memories and false perceptions than people realize. So it doesn't matter how memorable, how salient an experience is. There's no guarantee that it was reality. It, just because you sensed it doesn't mean it was true. There are Now, we can't escape the fact that we have to use our personal experience, in other words, our effectors, our, you know, our sense organs, to detect the world around us. But there are certain tools that you can use to increase the reliability of those observations. One of those is the principle of multiple observation. So if you have a, a single data point is not a science make, right? You need to have multiple data points. If you got multiple data points, you can have a little bit more confidence that what you're seeing is real. In addition to that, you have to have multiple people doing the observing. So you need to have corroborating evidence from other people. If you got at least more than one person doing the observing, then you can be a little more certain, not absolutely certain, but a little more confident that what you're looking at is probably some empirical event. Now, principle of replication and all of these different scientific ideas, that's what they're designed to do. They were designed to rule out these alternative explanations for people fooling themselves. For example, the, the, the control condition in experiments is specifically designed to set up the experiment to fail. So you arrange a condition to 
allow the experiment to fail if it's going to fail. And that's, that's looking for disconfirming evidence. It's designed to eliminate the confirmation bias. There are powers of suggestion, expectancy effects, where if you expect an outcome to happen, that can alter how you perceive the world. The first step is to identify all of the ways that your personal experience can fool you. You know, scientists have known this for a while, but you have to be careful what you say to your subjects in an experiment, because what you say to the subjects can affect the outcomes. There's a really easy experiment that can be run by students. And I, I use this example in the class. It's called the flashing light experiment. And in this experiment, you would have a long hallway that's lit on one end and you stand with the student on the, on the end of the hallway that's lit and it, the rest of the hallway is dark. And you just, all the only thing you say to the student is, okay, I want you to walk down that hallway and I want you to stop when you see a light flash. And you just run one student after the next. And about half the students in that experiment are going to stop believing they saw a light flash, even though there is no light that's going to flash at all. Simply the suggestion that there's going to be a light flashing is enough to get half of those students to stop. It's very easy to do that. If, if I ask you to imagine yourself at some point yesterday, and imagine how you're sitting. Imagine that, are, are your legs crossed? Are you eating dinner? Are you watching TV? What are you wearing? Right now, you're imagining this. When I do this in a classroom with many people, the question I'll ask next is, how many of you imagined yourself as if you were looking through a camera, like in, from a third-person perspective? And a large number of people are going to raise their hands to that. And the reason I ask that is because well, you've never seen yourself from that angle before. So already, just by me asking you to do this, you've, you've created a false memory. It, it might be accurate, but your brain has simulated reality for you. And then for those students that did not imagine themselves from the third-person perspective, I ask them to do it. Just by me asking you to do it, you can't help but do it. You'll see yourself sitting on the couch as if you're looking through the camera. The brain is an amazing thing, but that could not have happened. Now, if it's that easy to get somebody to create a false perception just by suggesting it, you can imagine the prosecutors and the, and the defense attorneys pulling their hair out in a trial because you want to be careful what you say. You want to be careful what the jury is exposed to. Uh, because that can just mess with somebody's perception of reality. And, and what you want to get to is the truth, right? Sure. And it's so sensitive. It is. I'm coming to a realization of our growing personal responsibility when we look at the digital media, look at the written word, whatever we're doing to gather our information, especially in light of what you mentioned about these deep fakes, yes. where the videos can be altered to look like someone is saying something that they never said, or they were somewhere they never were. So as we wrap up, can you tell people what can we do in terms of our personal responsibility? I know you've touched on some of it, but that that you haven't touched on, what would you say to the people listening now? That's a difficult problem, the deep fake issue. The fact of the matter is you just you can't accept the information you receive at face value. If you hear uh, some information, especially if it's information that that agrees with you or evokes emotion, 
So if you see a video of somebody, uh, you know, you have that video of Donald Trump joking about grabbing females in a particular way, right? He tried to say that that was a deep fake, that, that somebody had made that video up. But of course, nobody believed him at the time. It turned out to be him. But the fact of the matter is, we are right on the verge of that reality where somebody can say, that's not me. And I didn't say that. That's a deep fake. So all that means is that you don't know if it's true or not. So you just have to become more varied in your in your consumption of media. You have to read across the aisle. You have to know what the other guy's saying. And then you have to know what the, to simplify things, what the right, the center, and the left are saying about the same events. In consuming that information, there's a truth in there somewhere. Certainly where they agree in the articles, there's going to be the facts that they agree upon. That's probably going to be what's true. So there's a way to do that. One of the groups that helped me develop my course and continues to do so is the Heterodox Academy. They have a website called allsides.com. And on this website, they will display the media headlines from the left, from the right, and from the center. And you can just see how the headlines differ based upon the, the particular leaning in the media. And sometimes they differ greatly. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the, you know, the right will focus on a particular aspect of the story and the left will focus on a particular aspect of the same story. And putting them both together, you get a bigger picture of it, right? A more complete picture. That's probably the best tool that I could think of right now is to read across the aisle because that will help you control your tendency to be influenced by confirmation bias. Now, with the synthetic media that is coming, it's not necessarily a bad thing that there's going to be synthetic media. So like the distinction between fake news and regular news, there's deep fakes and then there's synthetic media. Deep fake is a form of synthetic media, but it's a form of synthetic media that's designed to mislead. It's designed to bias you in a particular way. Whereas regular synthetic media is just going to be there to provide information. And it's the difference between occasional media bias, right? It might be a particular leaning versus fake news, which is specifically designed to muddy the waters and to fool you. How will you tell the difference? The fact of the matter is you probably won't be able to. The computers themselves, they're even with digital footprinting, you probably will not. I mean, that's, that's one of those arms races that will happen where, you know, they'll, they'll find a new way to provide a digital footprint and then the computers will be sophisticated enough to beat it and to emulate it. And it'll be this never ending process. So we just have to learn to develop our skills, tell truth from fiction, but also not hold on to any particular truth as if it is the truth in quotes, you know, be willing to change our minds with reasonable evidence. When there are credible experts making a claim, when credible, for example, when credible experts are in agreement, the layperson is wise not to hold the opposite opinion. So you have Dr. Fauci telling you the coronavirus is a problem. You should wear a mask. We should be listening to Dr. Fauci on that. But if there are disagreements among credible experts, then no layperson should hold the belief that one thing is true or another. You can never, you can't claim to know what's true. If the experts are in a disagreement, the layperson can't know that something's true. So you just have to remain skeptical about it. 
That you got to check your sources and look into other sources of information. This is so important, and I so appreciate you taking the time to speak to us about this. If nothing else, hopefully it raises awareness to people when they're receiving all of the information they receive, and now you know there's a there is a better way. We can take personal responsibility and we can educate ourselves much as you're educating the students. And I thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. It was my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to presenting to the OLLI. So hope to see you there. Thank you. We look forward to it. Thank you very much. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Brian Lovelace. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.